You are listening to The Rant. Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God. I am Kamala Harris. My pronouns are she and her. I am a woman sitting at the table wearing a blue suit. You are listening. So the best way to get something done, if you, if it holds near and dear to you that you uh, um, like to be able to... Anyway. You fucking crazy man. You sound insane. Do you realize that? To the, to the rant. I speak jive. Oh, good. I've been saying it. I've been saying it for 10 damn years. Ain't I been saying it, Miguel? Huh? I've been saying it. You are listening to The Rant with David King. It is good to be here with you on this January 14th on this special part three of the walking dead. I am very sorry that it has taken this long for me to get to you, uh, with this episode. Uh, we started this show or this series back in December. Uh, unfortunately, um, I got very sick <clears throat> about midway through December I don't really know what I got. Um, it might've been COVID to be completely honest with you. Uh, <coughs> it's, it lingered for quite a while. Um, but I lost my voice, so there was no way I could have done the show. Plus I had a horrible cough. And then, uh, as some of you who know me personally know, um, on Christmas Eve on our, uh, uh we got back home from working in Atlanta and we found our house was flooded. So for those of you who may or may not know, you probably do. Um, there was a huge freeze that came through the South. And unfortunately the homes in the South are just not built for that sort of temperature at, you know, five below zero sort of thing. And unfortunately one of our pipes broke and funny enough, if you even want to say it's funny, well, it really wasn't. My entire first floor was wrecked. Uh, it is still wrecked. We're waiting on the insurance to finish up their side of the of things. But the pipe burst like four or five feet into the house. So it wasn't like at the spigot. Um, it was actually further on down. So it was quite interesting. It broke in two different places on the same pipe. But needless to say, it was a mess. Um, you know, we just, we had already just filed a claim because we had a, a water damage claim uh, about four or five months prior to this one. So... Needless to say, I know my, my, my policy is going to go up, go figure. I, I don't file a claim in the eight years of living in this house. And now here in one, in a matter of six months, I filed two claims. So needless to say, it's been a little bit hectic here. I have been trying so hard to get back behind the mic, but unfortunately uh, life has gotten in the way and it's been very difficult to do, but here I am and I'm happy to be back and I'm happy to start back with the walking dead series. And I have finished part three 
three and I'm going to be doing part four. Those will actually both release this week and you'll be able to get both of those. And then of course, part five will kick off when I finish watching part five. And so here we go. Uh, we finished season two and now we're on season three. And so season three starts off sometime later after the fall of Herschel's farm. As you both, as everybody know, if you're following along with me, season two, Herschel's farm fell to a gigantic horde of zombies and the, the barn burned down and all, all, all hell broke loose. And the group unfortunately lost their little sanctuary. And from what we can see here, the group has been kind of on the run, uh, going house to house, street to street, looking for food and shelter, also, Lori is very, very pregnant right now at this point. She's, and so it's safe to say that they've been pretty much wandering around uh, for for several months. There's no doubt in my mind because she wasn't showing at the end of season two, but now she's very much showing, uh, almost like she's about ready to pop, which we'll get to that later on. And from the look of the group, it's pretty clear that none of them have found much peace in terms of, uh, you know, f- there's certainly no sanctuary. Um and yet, they've also appeared to have really honed their survival skills. Uh, we can see Carl, who's now a little bit older, and he's kind of clearing rooms with a handgun that has like a makeshift suppressor on it. But he's kind of leading their way through in other rooms and clearing them, which I thought was very great. And, and I love these little details, too, with the, the, make, the makeshift uh, suppressor on the end of the pistol, which, if you look closely, it's a baseball bat. So it's, it's a modified baseball bat. And I like it. It's, it's really clever. And these little details are great to me because it's it's not totally in your face, but it's enough to show you that the group has kind of gotten a little bit smarter. Um, they're adapting to this new world they're in. And we see further signs of this when the group forms sort of a phalanx uh, uh, formation when they're clearing areas, areas of the walkers in the prison. You see them kind of create this circle around each other so nobody can kind of, nothing can get to their back. They've always got somebody guarding their back and, and vice versa. And so that leads me to the next part. Um, the group stumbles across the oh so infamous prison and which to any, you know, which anyone who's, you know, wandering around trying to survive in the apocalypse, a prison would look like the four seasons. And, you know, of course, and the irony of free people seeking security in a prison isn't lost on me either. But in some ways it does represent the idea that no matter how free we are today in normal society, we always seek to go after law and order. And we never truly want to be 100% free, but the level of freedom can be that 100% freedom, that level of freedom can be very chaotic, uncomfortable, and foreign to us. No one really likes that. We like our we like our routines, our daily activities. And this prison kind of represents that a little bit over the over this season and the course of the next season. But uh, but I digress. They found the, a sanctuary. Unfortunately, it's full of walkers. And so the group has to decide if they want to clear it and risk their safety. Rick, being the leader, makes the call, leads the team into the prison, and begins the journey of clearing it. An interesting side note, uh, just a hole in the overall story, in my opinion, they were probably about a mile away from this prison uh, at the end of the second season. There was a little pan out that showed us this much, and yet they wandered for months and never came across it sooner. I mean, maybe that's me being a little bit picky about the way the whole story's written, but again, if you've been out there for a long time, it's likely you would have stumbled on it probably sooner than later. I mean, are we to believe that they wandered in every other direction, backtracked and just missed it? I mean, literally you choose the direction to go either toward it or away from it. And you know, you're not going to go away from it. Never. You're either going to go away from it, never finding it 
or you're going to go directly towards it and eventually find it, or you're going to circle the area. I mean, and, and eventually stumble across it. But it seems to me that they, they were, tr- they were in this area for months and they didn't seem to go. I guess they didn't go much further than where they began in season two. I mean, they didn't find it for months and then they magically circled back to the area that they started at and going, Oh, Hey, look a prison. I mean, it just seems kind of strange to me. Also, it seems to me that Woodbury is probably within, I would say maybe less than 10 miles or so of the prison. At least that's what the show kind of makes out. People literally run from Woodbury and manage to make it to the prison in a reasonable amount of time within the same day. So it's within a sort of fast paced walking distance of each other. How is it that the group didn't find that town or for that matter, stumble across any of the people there that lived in, um, in Woodbury while they were moseying around. I can understand if you were merely wandering around for a few weeks, but it's been months and the show has us the, <clears throat> it's been, it's been weeks and, but the show has them wandering around for months and it shows us that you've been marauding around clearing neighborhoods for supplies. So you've been going all over this, this area looking for things and trying to find shelter and whatever you can to eat. You would think that they would have stumbled across this prison, which was literally right next to them. Um, much sooner or for that matter Woodbury, but they didn't, they wandered for months and didn't manage to see any of that. But again, that's just me being nitpicky. But from there, the show cuts over to Andrea. So they find the prison and now we're fine. We're back over to Andrea who we all forgot about even after jumping right from season two to three and not waiting to a year, like in the past. So I don't know about you, but I've completely, I've completely forgot about her. I went right from season two to season three. And it's like, Oh yeah, Andrea's still alive. I forgot. She's now the strange new character and one we caught a glimpse of after the season two ended. Uh, her name is Michonne. And I have to say, I've always really liked her character. Um, she's not unusual in any way, except she figured out maybe that keeping a couple of walkers near her all cut up disguises her from them. Um, you know, she takes the jaw and the arms off and they don't, they don't have really an, an I, the ability to feed. So they're just kind of, they just kind of stand there and grunt. But they keep the other walkers away from her. It kind of helps disguise her in, in within the herd. And, you know, some may find that kind of cheesy, but I, I, I really didn't because I kind of put this in line with covering yourself with walker guts that hides you from the hordes. Um, it's kind of in line with that. So I didn't think it was too over the top. But anyway, Andrea appears to be pretty sick. And like the other group, they've been kind of wandering around for a while too. Obviously the same amount of time. Uh, they have all these funny stories of them that they talk about later on. So the two... Uh, have made quite the friendship. So they've been together for a while. At least that's what we're made to believe. And we kind of find out that more and more as the season goes on again, never running into anyone at all at the time and somehow managed to run into the governor's group now and, and not months sooner, but you know, Oh, well, again, we, we remember that Andrea was just outside of Herschel's farm when she discovered Michonne and Michonne and Andrea wandered for, for months trying to survive. And yet they didn't run into the prison. They didn't run back into Rick's group. They didn't run into anybody else. And they didn't run into Woodbury, which was strange within that, that time frame. <laughs> Again, Woodbury is not far from the prison. The prison was about a mile from the group when they left Herschel's farm. It wasn't like the, 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 the prison was, you know, miles and miles and miles away in some other direction. It just wasn't the case. But anyway, I'm ranting on about that and, it's just kind of one of my little nitpicks of this the season so far. It's kind of like, eh, it's, it seems a little bit unlikely, but whatever. But a helicopter full of army reservists is flying around and crashes into the woods. 
that's what we, we find out. We see this helicopter flying. These, these dudes are all hanging out. You're kind of confused. You're like, is this like a premonition or is this, you know, current time? But then you find out it is in fact the current time. Um, somehow the army national guard managed to keep JP eight jet fuel on hand and fly this helicopter around. Even though when they go back to the group, you don't see a JP eight truck. You don't see any jet fuel around. And I'm sure the pilots had no maintainers with them. So there was no one to maintain the helicopter as well. So, you know, again, this far into the, um, I could understand if they came from a military base with the sort of, um, with all the equipment needed to maintain an aircraft as I used to maintain aircraft for the Marine Corps. Uh, I was a aviation ordinance man and we did our own level of maintenance, but we were very much hands on with the aircraft there's a lot that goes into that. It's not like you could just walk out and fire the thing up. And so, but these guys managed to, but they were out in the middle of nowhere with their group. And so there was no, there was no real way for them to keep this thing fueled up and, and maintain to fly. But, but then again, that kind of goes, it kind of, it, I'm really not, this kind of goes against my point because the, the helicopter ends up breaking down. It has a malfunction and it, and it does crash. So you could say that, well, maybe they were just running on fumes and of course the lack of maintenance caused it to crash. So fair enough. But anyway, uh, this helicopter full of army guys, they, they're flying around. It crashes in the woods and Andrea and Michonne stumble upon it. Uh, but before they can get close, another group arrives. And this is where we're introduced to the governor, a very handsome, well-spoken and charming man who is a leader of a large community called Woodbury. At first glance, is the governor seems like a pretty great guy. And wouldn't you know, Merle is, and wouldn't you know it, Merle's with him. Again, what, if, what are the freaking odds that Merle stumbles out of Atlanta with his hand cut off and manages to find a group in the same geographical location as the other group who has his brother in it? But anyway, needless to say, Andrea is a little shocked to see him, as are the rest of us. We kind of thought that character was long gone. Uh, they get taken back to Woodbury, where she's treated for with medicine and healed up and She's kind of on on the mend, but they were stripped of their weapons and the governor assured them it's for their, everyone's safety and they could have them back if they wanted to leave. Well, Michonne doesn't really take kindly to that and you can see, and she can see right through the governor's charm. So she wants to leave, but Andrea, not so much. And can you blame her? I mean, they've been wandering around trying to survive and she almost died from the flu basically. And, and this town is the closest representation to the old world as it can get. The parallels are are nice here with Michonne and Andrea. I quite like it. Um, you have to remember that in the second season, uh, Andrea departed mentally from the old world. So, um, or excuse me, she never departed mentally from the old world. She was very stuck to the old world in the old kind of, as we say now, post-pandemic, the, the old normal. <laughs> We talked about that in the second season, the season that season represented the death of the old, old world and the birth of the new apocalyptic one and all the people trying to navigate that and come to terms with it. That's basically what season two was, was everyone kind of trying to figure out how to, where did they want to go? When Shane and Rick were debating on killing the prisoner that they had, that was the moment where the group had to decide what direction they were going to go in. Andrea at the last minute, if we remember sided with Dale, which was representative that she was still holding out that things could be normal again, that the old world wasn't dead because Dale was very much the representation of the old world. Shane represented the new world, world, the world of chaos and, and, and whatever. 
And then you have Dale over here who's representing the old world, the world that we live in now. And so it's no wonder she clings so quickly to the governor in Woodbury. She so desperately wants to believe the old world still exists because when she didn't, she wanted to die. Hence the scene at the CDC in season one where she tried to stay with the doc, uh, Dr. Cohen, I believe his name was, and end her life. Michonne, on the other hand, was plunged into the fire of chaos very early and had no, tam- no time to really weigh the options for herself. And we later find out about Michonne's past and why she is such a cunning survivor and who fits very well in this new world. So you can see the parallels here between the two. Michonne is a survivor. She's fit and prepared to take on whatever this new world has throws at her. She's been born in it, essentially reborn in it, if you will. Whereas uh, Andrea has really just kind of clung on in the hope that things will go back to normal, but they never will. Uh, that, that world is gone and long gone. And so she very much loves, it falls in love with Woodbury, it falls in love with the governor and everything it represents. She has the blinders on. She cannot see past all of the, all of the facade that is Woodbury. So meanwhile, back at the prison, the group is dealing with the caverns full of walkers. So we're still clearing the prison at this point. The prison is kind of like a haunted maze, except in this one, you can actually die. Uh, it's quite terrifying. I don't know. I look, I watched that part of the show and I always think to myself, like, could I have, would I have wanted to go into that prison, into those, those, those cavernous dark hallways to clear walkers? Um, I don't know. I don't know if I would have had the uh, gonads to do it, to be honest with you. I've never been a fan of haunted mansions or haunted rides and, or anything like that. So I really don't think I'd be a huge fan of walking into something that's haunted and generally could kill you. Uh, I think I'd probably be like, nah, I'm good. Uh, I'll find something else to live in. I'll, I'll go find a house or something. Uh, but during all that, they come across a group of prisoners hiding in the mess hall. And this encounter is kind of foreshadowing for Rick as he has to make a decision that will save his life and the group. One of the prisoners is pretty much a psycho, and he tries to kill Rick uh, a couple different times. And while Rick had had enough of that, and basically drives an axe right into the dude's skull. Um, that's a very simplified version of that entire scene, but it's pivotal because it shows just how much of a monster Rick has become. Remember what we talked about in the last uh, in the last uh, season, which is finding your inner monster. It's important that all of us in our life find the inner monster within us, and then you tame it. The group at an individual level will need to do that to survive. They need to find their inner monster and tame it. Shane, he found his very quickly, uh, but couldn't tame it, and it led him. It led to his ultimate demise. Rick found his at the very end of season two. And I said, would he become the tyrant or the fearless leader? We'd have to see because you get a little glimpse where he does become a a little bit of a tyrant there where he basically tells people enough of the talk, enough of the, enough of the arguing. It's what I say goes or not at else. If you don't like it, you can leave, you can go wherever you want, but if you're going to stick around here with this group, you're going to follow my orders. And so that was a little glimpse of, ah, Rick has become the monster. He's found his inner monster. He's, he's, he's. He's living in it, but is he going to fall into a pit of malevolence? It almost looks like he is. But from the looks of this season, he has become the fearless leader that we would hope that he would. And everyone has willfully followed him and his leadership. So it looks like he may have subverted and dodged that portion. He's not going to end up like Shane. And take note of that. Take note, uh, because uh, that being the monster is a good thing. Taming it is what you must do. And when you do that, people respect you and look up to you. So remember that. Remember that for your own life. 
Uh, figure out how to, to reach down inside of you and find how far you can really go and then control it. And you'll really realize just how much that kind of transcends to people around you. They will pick up on that and they will, lo- they will look to you as a leader. That's what's happened here with Rick. He is now the fearless leader and he does whatever it takes to protect his people. And I, oh, and I failed to mention in all of this that Herschel was bitten in the leg and uh, Rick, without hesitation, threw on a turnkit and cut Herschel's leg off, saving his life. That is being a monster. That is stepping up and doing something unimaginable, but doing it because it would save a person's life. It is the right thing to do. Become a monster in your life. Tame that monster and thrive. That's what you need to do. This is a little side note, uh, kind of motivational, going into the new year, find your inner monster, tame that inner monster, and go thrive. That's what I want you to do. So needless to say, the prison has not really been a cupcake journey for these for this group. It may even look as if maybe it was a mistake to some degree just because it is a bit of a mess, but there is quite a bit of potential to it. However, uh, you know, with all that being said, one of the bad prisoners had escaped after Rick killed the, the one psycho prisoner and the other two that were left standing there were sent to separate cell blocks in order to stay away from the group. Later on, that bad prisoner shows back up and decides to turn on the backup generators in the prison and trip the alarms, which sends the walkers into a tizzy. The entire group gets pulled deep into the prison, running from the dead, and also trying to locate where or who triggered the alarms. Uh, Rick and Daryl come across this prisoner, uh, and it leads to a tussle between him and Rick, who is promptly killed by the other prisoners in a show of good faith. And from here, the group gains a couple of allies in the prisoners. But unfortunately... Lori, Carl, and Maggie are cut off hiding from the dead when Lori's water breaks. Uh-oh. Oh, what perfect timing, you cruel world. Unfortunately, Herschel and Carol are the ones who were trained on doing a C-section if it needed to, ha- to happen, but they're not around, and they do not have the proper medical equipment or supplies to perform the C-section. Carl and Maggie have to do it because otherwise the baby will die and kill Lori. However... If they perform the C-section, Lori will die. This is an awful situation and one where Maggie tries to negotiate with Lori, but unfortunately there's really only one answer and Lori knows it. And it's a pretty intense scene because, you know, Carl, who's a child, has to, one, witness his mother die. Two, shoot his mother because she's going to turn into a zombie. And then Maggie gets put into the situation where she knows that whatever, that what she's about to do is going to kill Lori, who she cares about and doesn't, and doesn't really want to have to do that. You have to keep in mind, Maggie is still fresh off the farm. She's not as um, enthralled into this new world as the other older group members from season one are. Maggie's been on the farm since the beginning of the pandemic. And so she doesn't have as much time out here seeing the shit for the lack of better terms. So this was a very hard moment for her. This was a, this was a moment of growth, but also pretty unfortunate. The episode ends with Rick and group in the group meeting back up in the prison yard and Rick finding out that Lori's dead and Carl had to put down his own mother. It was a pretty crazy moment. It's probably one of the better scenes, uh, emotional scenes in the entire, entire season. I quite liked the way it was filmed. I quite liked the, the acting from um, <coughs> the gentleman that plays Rick, uh, Andrew Lincoln. I think he did a really good job in that scene. Just imagine being a, a husband, a loving husband who found out that his wife is dead and your son had to bear witness to it and also take part in it. Um, 
you can imagine the emotion that would go through you in that situation. And I think he really, he really showed it very well in that, that scene. <clears throat> so welcome to the new world, everyone. It's, it's nothing but hell and chaos and you got to be strong enough mentally to navigate. It. And if you are lucky, you won't go insane from it. But Rick does though, for a very brief moment, he does start to lose his mind promptly afterwards, which requires others in the group to step up and lead in the meantime, which is mainly Herschel and Glenn. All of this leads Maggie and Glenn leaving the prison in search of baby formula while out. Once you have it, they run into Merle who was hunting down Michonne who decided to cut ties with Andrea and leave Woodbury. Merrill takes Glenn and Maggie back to Woodbury as captives. And Michonne takes the formula to the prison where Rick sees her standing there outside the gate. This is where we finally start to see the malevolence of the governor. Now keep in mind, we've already seen a little bit of that when he, shot and killed the national guardsmen and we saw the jar the fish tank full of heads we already knew something was really up with this guy but we really get the cherry on top when they capture glenn and maggie merrill merrill beats the living hell out of glenn for information on his brother and the governor forces himself on maggie to get her to talk but neither do until the governor threatens to shoot glenn michelle leads the group to woodbury to save glenn and maggie a nice firefight breaks out and they manage to find them and pull them out, uh, pull them out safely. <clears throat> but I will say this, um, this entire action sequence inside Woodbury kind of shows me that neither the writers or directors understand how firearms work, uh, or have any kind of military background or they didn't have, they didn't seem to have anybody on set that was a, a maybe a weapon specialist. Um, every weapon in this show is fully automatic and, and it has just seems to have an endless supply of ammo. Uh, a major beef I've always had with this show is the fact that is that fact every weapon's fully automatic and just, they never seem to run on ammo in a real world situation. No one, no one in their actual right mind would be unloading full magazines into the dark of night. I mean, unless the governor or Rick's group has a bullet manufacturing facility somewhere, it's safe to say that ammo is not plentiful. Semi-automatic people. That's the key here. Uh, single fire. That would be what you would do. Uh, you would not be just blindly spraying all that ammo uh, into the street like they were. Also, most of the weapons that you would find um, in the apocalypse, if you were going from house to house and finding firearms, they would only be semi-automatic anyway. Uh, as most legally owned firearms in the United States, almost 98 to 99%, I would say, of legally owned fire rifles in the United States are not fully automatic as they are illegal to own and require a special license. So not very many people own fully automatic weapons. Uh, some states completely don't allow it, period. Other states will allow you to get a, a sort of special license for it, but um, it's hard to get. It's expensive. Most people don't bother. It, you know, fully automatic is, you know, from a tactical perspective, is it's just not necessary. It, it's just kind of fun. It's more of a fun thing. It's like a fun button. You flip that on, you pull the trigger, and it just keeps going. It, it's fun. Um. But if but for for any kind of real life purpose, fully automatic doesn't serve any. Um, the military doesn't use full auto rifles. We we don't. The M sixteen A four is a semi automatic uh, and it and is a semi auto rifle. It does have a three round burst, which is an extremely stupid setting uh, that we never ever used in training or anything else, unless we just wanted to go, wanted, unless we were just fooling around and we just flipped it to three round burst and would hit it. It was just fun to fool around, but. But in terms of any kind of tact, tactical purpose, it didn't serve any. Um, the M4, uh, which is the military version of the uh, AR-15, which everybody in this country 
either loves or hates. Uh, the M4, the military version is fully automatic, but again, they don't, we don't use that rifle very much anymore. And when we do again, it's only used on semi-auto because it's much more accurate. You can serve ammo, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, I digress. The point is, it's just over the top, and anyone with half a brain knows they're going to run out of ammo at some point. I don't see Rick carrying a vest full of spare magazines for that fancy little AK-47 he had. And for me, the details matter, and I just I just always hated that. <coughs> because it's it's not like he's just bursts. He's doing bursts. I mean, this dude is like laying on the trigger, and I've not even seen him replace the mag. Like, he just keeps going. But anyway, I again, I digress. I'm going on to a rant. This entire operation obviously sparks a war between the prison and Woodbury. Even though technically, in my opinion, Woodbury started the war by capturing Glenn and Maggie and torturing them. So really, it was already kicked off. Uh, The rest of the season focuses on that and Andrea trying so desperately to stop the two groups from killing one another. Uh, Andrea is still stuck in the old world mentality. She has not found her inner monster and can't make the tough calls. And we see that because she knows that the governor is malevolent to some degree because she knows that he is going to do something to hurt her friends. He's not a great guy at this point and has the opportunity to kill him on two occasions, but can't, she can't bring herself to do it. And this would of course lead to a massacre and the deaths of a lot of people. Sometimes the most brutal and awful decisions we have to make in life are the ones that could save the most lives or even your own, which is, is the case for Andrea. And the governor makes it pretty clear to Rick, there can't be any peace. So they, they sit down and, Andrea kind of sets up this like negotiation meet in a neutral place and see if you could come to terms. So she really wants everyone to kind of live and let live. But the governor makes it pretty clear that Rick to Rick that there can't be any peace, uh, but levels with him and says, if you can give me Michonne, I won't attack the prison. Now I really actually like this scene. It kind of reminds me a lot of like the old civil war era where the two generals would kind of come off the battlefield and meet at a table to dis- discuss the terms as gentlemen you know, we, don't, we definitely don't fight like that anymore, but that just kind of reminds me of the old world fighting. And so this presents quite the conundrum for Rick. And as viewers already know, we are, as viewers, we already know that the governor, he's not going to let Rick and this group go, even if he gives up Michonne. But Rick isn't sure, and, but he has a feeling that the governor isn't a man of his word either. But needless to say, Rick doesn't hand uh, Michonne over. But Merrill does take her. He proclaims that Rick doesn't have the stones to do it, so he'll be the bad guy. And this is where we see an interesting character arc. And I think it's important to mention this. Um, it's something I quite like about Merrill because Merle, Merle is one of those characters that we kind of just like either, either didn't like him or you, you kind of tolerated him. He was, he's kind of an annoying character. He's a bad guy. He's very much the protagonist in every situation. But uh, so, you know, in the process of Merrill, Merle taking, Michonne to the governor, he has kind of a change of heart Um, and he lets Michonne go, but proceeds on toward the governor anyway. And in good Merle fashion, grabs a bottle of booze, liquors up and leads a group of walkers to meet up to the meetup location where the governor is waiting. Now I love this scene Uh, from there. Merrill begins to take out the governor's soldiers, which leads to his capture and inevitably his death. I love this scene uh, because right here, what we have here is how you write a comeback story. This is a good character arc. Take note, Kenobi. Yes, I brought up Kenobi again, and I will always continue to bring up Kenobi to make a point. 
Merrill was not the most pleasant man. We can all agree. And needless to say, after season one, I doubt many fans liked him or even give him, gave him, gave him much thought. Probably saw him definitely saw him as the protagonist in season one. Uh, he was obviously a racist. He kind of said some really nasty stuff. He wasn't a very good character. He wasn't a very good guy, a well-written character nonetheless, but just a, he was a bad guy. And from there on, we link back up to him. Now we see he still has the same old selfish and awful, awful to deal with Merrill. He's still the same old guy. He does what the governor's bidding and taking and, you know, taking what he can on the side. Merle is kind of like essentially a pirate. That's what Merle is. He's, he takes what he can, follows orders from one man who's the captain, or in this case, the governor. He's basically a pirate. But he redeems himself. He helps the group, and he tries to make men's. But here's the kicker. And the key to writing a character arc where, and this is the key to, write, to, to writing a character arc where a bad guy becomes the anti-hero or, for, or a hero for that matter. He, um, Merle sacrifices himself for the betterment of the group. Right, he he kind of had he he visually and he visually has a a moment where he sees the the error of his ways. He begins to see the error of his ways in his life back at the prison. Well, actually, even before that, because as him and his brother are walking through the woods together when they were separated from the group, his brother basically kind of sh- pointed a light at his behavior and said, "Look, dude, you can't be this way anymore. You're gonna have to change." And he probably felt like he can't change. Um, there's no, there is no other version of me, but this guy, this is the guy I am like, take it or leave it. But deep down, he wants to be the good guy. And so uh, he sacrifices himself for the group and through that can be redeemed and, and even in some cases provoke some sympathy and sadness from the, from the viewers. This is very good writing. It's very much like Darth Vader. You know, Vader was a bad guy. He killed a lot of people. He did a ton of evil things. But in the end, he redeems himself by saving Luke and killing Palpatine. However, he dies doing it. He has to die. You understand this? So this is the same thing with Merle. Merle has to die here. He can't live. Uh, and like, Just like Vader. Vader has to die. He can't survive. There's no way Vader walks away from all of his crimes. A free and moral man who lives to the ripe old age of 80 and dies in bed with loved ones around him. It doesn't work that way. Not for Vader, not for people like Merle. And there still has to be justice for his crimes. And his sacrifice is that justice. He dies the hero. Otherwise, he's tried for war crimes and basically rots in prison. You know, or in the case of Merle, he continues to be the black sheep, right? There's no real, you could say, yeah, you're sorry. Uh, but we still know all these things that you've done that are really bad. And, you know, even though you're sorry, we're still holding you accountable and you have to put, you have to be punished for your sins. You know, <clears throat> you know, if, you know, if, if, if the person lives and rots away in this, in a prison, it, then fine that that's, if, you know, maybe that's what you're going for in the story. But Vader's story, going back to Darth Vader, um, his story is about the fall and the redemption through sacrifice. An obvious fail in this is in Kenobi with the character Reva. So if you want to see the opposite, the way you don't do this, there's no, you don't have to go very far. You can go watch Kenobi and see the character of Reva. Sure, she had a troubled childhood. We can all understand that. We can sympathize with her troubled childhood. But she chose the path of the dark side in anger. I mean, she literally cut a woman's hand off and tortured a little girl for information. Um, She's a very malevolent person. There's no doubt about that. And in the end of this series, Kenobi says, 
She could be whoever she wants to be now because she saw the error of her ways. And so she gets off and walks off in the darkness and everything's fine. There's no sacrifice, no justice. Nope. You're free to go. Forget all the awful stuff you did. It's fine. Who cares that you cut off a woman's hand and tortured a kid? Nobody cares. And this makes her story unlikable. And in many cases, laughable. Everyone's going like, what? You just told her like, you can be whoever you want to be because you you now feel bad for what you've done. You realize what you've done is wrong. So now you could just go on scot-free. What about the people you've killed? What about the women, you, the people you tortured? And so, you know, the viewer is not going to have sympathy. They're not going to have, they're not going to have a relatable moment, but instead they'll probably just throw up in a trash can nearby from the nauseating writing that's in that script. Kenobi literally appears to be written by a five-year-old girl and not a grown professional adult. But anyway, Merle sacrifices himself and now it's war. So in some ways you could say, we, well, you can't say that what Merle did was the bad thing because we all know that the governor was not going to let Rick's group go. But what Merle did is he did take out a, a few of the governor's soldiers, which was really helpful. <clears throat> and, you know, so Rick was never going to give up Michonne anyway. So he sets off for weapons where he meets an old friend gone crazy. And why did his friend go crazy? Because he couldn't make the tough call. And so he lost his wife and son. Are you seeing a trend here? Season three is about making tough decisions and what happens when you don't or when you do. That's basically the underlying theme of season three. It's, 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 it's focusing, even though, uh, Dwayne, was it Dwayne? No, what was his name? I can't remember, but between Rick, the governor and this guy, you kind of see what happens when you, when you do make decisions and when you don't make decisions and the consequences in which they have, they have when you don't even Andrea is an, is, is a someone who doesn't make the right decisions. Okay. So that is the trend of season three. It's all about, you know, making the tough call, you know, season three is the ushering on of the new world. So season one is the, the death of the new world of the old world, right? Season two is a continuation of that death and people coming to terms with it, deciding what path they want to go on in that new, where as the new world approaches season two is ultimately the end of the old world. And now season three is the ushering on of the new world, the new world of, uh, the world of chaos and death. That's basically what this is. It's just nothing but, but that even the governor tries to usher back in the old world with law and order in Woodbury. But as fast as it started, he loses it. And so the governor would wage an attack on the prison and lose. He would then mow down the people fighting for him who wanted to run the other way. And from there he's left alone and lost. And in that time, Andrea would die something that may have been avoided had she had made the tough decision. Andrea wasn't prepared to go into the new world from season one. And unfortunately that new world took her life for it. The group managed to fight off the governor and live another day. The season ends with Rick and the group rescuing the last of Woodbury. Uh, the last people of the last group of Woodbury, the people left behind taking them and taking them back to the prison. Obviously this is a very abbreviated rundown of the season. There's just far too much detail to go into uh, in, in just one show, uh, out of all the seasons so far, this one had a ton going on in it. There's no doubt about it. Generally since season one, um, the group has always been together. They're either in the quarry or in a convoy or at Herschel's farm. They're always all together going through the exact same thing at once. We don't really get a whole lot of side stories, 
But in season three, the writing changes a little and it starts to show multiple stories at once. You have the prison and their story and then Woodbury and Andrea's story and that. And so, and then there's kind of like some seg, some breakoffs in there as well. Overall, the season is well balanced out. I think by this, it's, it's easy to track. You don't get very lost. You can kind of keep up with it. It gives you, it, it leaves you on the hook wanting more, but it, but it gives that to you. It gives you what you want later on in a, in a well-meaningful amount of time. You're not left hanging for, uh, for very long. I think the governor and Woodbury uh, is as interesting as the prison. So it all really works well with each other. Um, and it's also kind of a nice yin and yang as you see the differences in leadership between the governor and Rick and how those things are going. Um, I, I pretty much found myself locked in and, and ready for the next episode. Each time I watched it was, it was easy for me to binge season three um, as, as I felt the story was very compelling and interesting. I, I finished season three actually really, really quickly. Um, it was far different from the first two, which I think the first two was a, a little slower paced and maybe a little more methodical in its pacing and its timing. You know, in the start of season three, you're pretty much immediately thrown into action. There's walkers. The walkers are more prominent. They're everywhere. I would say you probably see more walkers and walker deaths in this first two episodes of season three than probably all of season two. Um, and, I, and, and in some ways, I believe that this is intentional. You know, as I said before, season two was about the kind of the death, the final death of the old world, whereas season three is the birth of the new world and the group being casted off into it. It's, it's just chaotic. It's fast paced. It's bloody. It's unforgiving. There's all these different things going on. And so, and everyone's just trying to kind of survive and find their way through it. You know, season three as a whole is all that it's action packed. It's never quitting. You almost can feel what the characters are feeling as they deal with the stress of being lost in this dangerous world or making the decision, say, going into a prison and clearing it, knowing it could be so that you could die doing it, but the benefits outweigh the negative. Um, and, and you can kind of talk that through yourself. Like, would you do it or how would you do it? Would you, would you believe the prison's worth it? How would you feel if you were going through the prison and you start to really get engaged and really um, kind of enthralled in this story? Um, all in all, I, I really like season three. Uh, and I especially loved how they, they, they cast it and wrote the governor's character. I think David Morris, he played the perfect antagonist in this. Uh, he's the perfect first villain for Rick to encounter. Um, like I said earlier, he's, he's, he's charming. He's a well-spoken, he's a handsome guy. You know, he's got the, that charming voice where he can, oh, we're come down here to the Mount Woodbury and you know, uh, you can do whatever you want, just so you know, but we'd love to have you here. He's just got that kind of way about him where he just, you find yourself wanting to follow him as well. And I think that's just part of um, David Morrissey's ability to play that character and the way it was written. It was just really, really well done. Um, he, he's, he's kind of what you would expect from the malevolent leader. He's kind of the hidden tyrant. You wouldn't know it. But everyone around him feels very safe and willing to follow him until they get too close and then they see the truth come up. But by then it's just too late. You either do what he says or you die. And that's what happens to kind of Andrea. She gets very, very close. But by the time she got so close, it was too late for her to do anything about it. And so when I first started watching season three, um, again, for the second time, which was this past time, you know, I was trying to wrap my head around the governor. You know, I, I one of the things I like to do as I like to try to understand each character, where their mind's at and everything, why they make the decisions they make, why they do the things that they do. 
and kind of break it down a little bit from like a psychological perspective, but just kind of try to understand like where is, why is this character acting this way? What's making them do this? Where are they going? And at first it seems like kind of much of what the governor's actions don't make a whole lot of sense. Um, for instance, when he comes up on the group of the army national guardsmen, he, he tricks them into lowering their weapons and then he kind of massacres them. Um, now obviously the scene lends to showing us that the governor's actually a bad dude. That's the low hanging fruit of it. I get it. Um, but, but I still ask myself like, why kill the soldiers? I, they didn't pose a threat. There was no reason to believe they were a threat. You know, why would, why not take them in? Why not? Why take in Andrea Michonne? but not trained soldiers who could in theory help protect your town. Um, the only answer I could come up with is he kind of felt they could pose a threat to Woodbury, maybe take over what he was built. But even then, like I don't really, I don't see that being a hundred percent of the reason. So it just got me thinking a little bit, you know, why is the governor, the governor, why is this guy evil? What, why does he do the things that he does? What drove this man to become this because he wasn't always this way before, you know, he kind of, he kind of lends to us. You don't, we don't really find out a whole lot about the governor. He kind of tells us very briefly to, when he's talking to Andrew that, you know, he was a nobody. He just kind of worked a regular job. He was a husband. He had a, you know, he had a kind of a crappy job and, you know, just was a, a normal dude. He wasn't a leader. He wasn't anybody. He wasn't a cop or anything or a detective or anything specific. He was just some guy. So what leads him down this path and why is he acting the way he's acting? And so one of the things I remember uh, was a, a video I had watched of Jordan Peterson's well, a little while back when he was t- teaching at the university of Toronto. And he was talking about how, if you can't figure out the motive of someone, you know, you can't understand why someone is the way they are, or what they're doing. The best way to try to figure out uh, the motive of someone or the mind of someone is to see what they're actually doing. So in other words, look at their actions and, and then you can kind of break down um, what, what their motive might actually be. And he used an example of Hitler, which I thought was pretty interesting. And he said that most people think that Hitler wanted to win the war and return Germany to its rightful place as a superpower or, you know, generate the third Reich or whatever nonsense he spewed. But Jordan says that that doesn't really align with his actions. And he goes, well, why is that? Well, for one, if you really wanted to win the war and make Germany great, you wouldn't dedicate a massive amount of your war effort on mass genocide of a group of people, especially when you're losing the war. Because what happened when the Allies approached Germany, Hitler doubled down his efforts in those camps. So Jordan said, you wouldn't do this if you wanted to win the war. You'd postpone all of the nasty genocidal stuff, right? And you'd focus your entire war effort on defeating the Allies. But Hitler didn't do that. He says, however, you may do this if your intentions all along were to inflict the most amount of damage and chaos as you can before you're taken out. In other words, your plan all along was to to unleash the most amount of hell on the world as you possibly could. And that makes perfect sense because Hitler was angry and he was a better man who was resentful of of how the prior world world war, uh, the world war one ended. And he blamed many groups, including the Jewish community for the outcome of it all. But I do believe Jordan was half right in this. And, I, and this leads me to the next thought of how the governor and the Hitler are very similar in their story. And bear with me here because I know this sounds maybe a little far-fetched, but yes, you know, they're both bad guys and, and Hitler is obviously worse and fair point. But hear me out. 
I believe Hitler in his mind, he wanted the best for Germany. Yes. Uh, so he, he did. He waged war to take back what he believed was rightfully theirs. And, and he, he went out, he mean, he, he went and waged war to make Germany a much greater superpower. Um, he listened to the people and he would say things and the people would cheer for him. And then if they cheered for something, he said, he would say it even louder. He was very much that kind of guy. And so in the very beginning, I think his intentions were to actually bring on the things that he said he wanted to do for better or for worse. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, he made negotiations and peace deals with countries in the region, including such as Italy. I do know he went back on some of those like with Russia, but <laughs> my point is it would appear that Hitler had a plan all along to make Germany the superpower once again. And he was doing that, but it wasn't until America and the allies got involved where things changed. When we started kicking his ass and pushing back into Germany, pushing him back into Germany. I think that's when he went full chaos mode as Jordan spoke to. It's like, you know, well, if I can't have it, no one can, if Germany can't have it, no one's going to have it. And so I'm just going to burn it all down as fast as I possibly can. And this makes sense because he felt the German army betrayed him. So he had no issue throwing them back at the allied lines to die. And obviously he hated and resented the Jews and the gypsies and other ethnic groups. So what did he do? Well, we saw what he did. And through that, I realized that that's the governor in so many ways. I came to this kind of, I know this is how my brain is thinking. It sounds kind of crazy, but the governor is the tyrant with a well-meaningful plan that descends into chaos. So now of course, meaningful to the governor for whatever that means, but malevolent to anyone with half a brain and a heart, or maybe not. But keep in mind, many of the Germans thought they were on the good side of the war too. So what made the governor a tyrant? Well, it, he reveals it later on. He says, I didn't have what it took to protect my family. And I made a promise to myself, I would never, I would do whatever it takes to protect what I love from now on. And there it is. He didn't have what it took to make the tough decisions. And that's the theme of season three. The death of his wife and daughter drove the governor to become a tyrant. He found his inner monster, but he couldn't harness that and tame the inner monster because now um, it, it, his, he was resentful and bitter and angry because of, a hit of the outcome of his lack of ability to do the right thing or step up. And so because, because of that resentfulness and that anger, he becomes the tyrant, much like um, you know, um, just like Hitler did, you know, Hitler was very angry. He was very resentful after the war. You know, he, he was scarred in his face. He couldn't even get accepted into an art school. This man was very bitter and angry. So he descended into a, into a tyrant, much like what the governor is. Um, it draw, drove them both into madness. And that's the governor. He found it too late. He found his monster too late, but then he was too angry, too bitter, and he descended into chaos. And by then he lost everything that mattered to him. And that made him, you know, by the time he figured it out, he lost everything. And it made him very angry, very resentful and sad. And all those things have driven him to become a malevolent tyrant because there's no way he's going to let himself make the mistake again. And it doesn't matter who gets in his way. There's no negotiating with that anymore. And so when he realizes he's lost the war to Rick, what does he do? Well, he goes into full chaos mode and wipes out his entire army himself, leaving him with only two other men. He just sprays down everybody in Woodbury that was fighting with him. He just goes freaking mad and mows them down. You know, it's no longer about protecting anyone or anything at this point. It's just about getting back at the world and causing as much destruction as possible. And that's exactly what the governor did. 
That's why he didn't take in the soldiers. That's why he wanted to take out Rick's group. That's why he comes back with vengeance in season four and destroys the prison. It's not really about keeping his new group safe. It's about destroying everything he can have and creating a massive amount of chaos in the process. And I'll touch more on that kind of in the the next season. The governor all in all is just such a well-written villain. Um, He is a simple man, but yet he's complex. He's an average man. That's what makes him very, um, makes him even, I think more interesting. He's not a superhero. He doesn't have any superpowers. He's not a, a genius or a scientist or some, you know, like he, he wasn't anything before the, the apocalypse. This guy was just a normal man. He's, he could have been you or me. And he has a history that makes him relatable and he can evoke some sympathy at times or some sort of emotion from the viewer. And I think they did a really good job on him. And as a continuation of that great character, right? And it's just a continuation of the great character writing in this show. That said, I, I had a few long-winded rants there, and I apologize. You know, I went on to talk about, you know, Hitler and Jordan Peterson, but I did find it interesting, the comparisons of the two and the psychological comparisons of the two. That's kind of what I was getting at with the whole Hitler and the governor comparison. It's, it's the psychological aspect of what drives a man to act like the governor. Why did he go down that path? And, you know, you look at his actions, and you can see. Right. And then you can kind of tie that with this past and then you can kind of formulate it and go, oh, okay, now it all makes sense. You weren't able to do what you were supposed to do. And now you've lost everything and you're bitter and you're angry and you're resentful and you're vowing to yourself to never do what you did before lack of thereof to do. You'll never do that again. And you don't care who gets in your way. And now it's, it's, it's too much. Right. But anyway, that's what I was getting at. And so, uh, I, overall, I thought the season was great. Solid continuation from the prior season. Um, you know, season one, two, and three. I, I still believe that season two is probably one of my favorite seasons. Um, we do see a lot of character arcs in this season. I thought it was really, really good. And how um, the interesting, interesting the change through their experiences in the new world. Each character is constantly growing. And, and that's hard to do. Like, it's really hard. It's hard enough to make one character grow and in such a way where it's believable and it's, and it's understandable and um, it's not kind of over the top or, you know, you, you think about character growth that's not done well. A, a good example would be like Ray from star Wars with the trilogy. She's kind of the Mary Sue of, of characters where she just kind of figures it all out pretty quickly. Doesn't really experience any challenges or any real heartaches or problems. Everybody loves her. And it just makes for a very boring and very flat character. Whereas you have multiple characters in this story, all traversing through this world, all growing and changing and experiencing hardships in their own way and and, and dealing with them in their own way. And each one of those characters is actually quite interesting and and very well done. And and that's hard to do uh, with one character, let alone a whole group of them. And they're doing that pretty well so far. Uh, I'd love to know if it carries on into season uh, beyond season four, I've already seen season four, so I kind of don't want to be like, oh, let's see if it happens next season, because it's like, that's a lie. I've already seen it. I know what happens. Uh, I will be doing that show uh, tomorrow, and I'll be posting it tomorrow as well. So on that note, ladies and gentlemen, I, I hope you've enjoyed this take on season three. I really liked it. I, I highly recommend you watch it. Um, the governor, in my opinion, is probably one of the best villains in the series. He's one of the most believable villains. He's Again, he's not some weird over the top character. Uh, he's, he's just an average guy who's just turned into a psycho man. And you know, everyone can hate the governor, but 
any one of us could easily become the governor. And that's the crazy, that's the scary thing about it is his story uh, is not that unusual and it could very easily happen to anybody in, a ter- in, in terms of being in a crisis where things don't go your way and your world falls apart. And the next thing you know, you become angry and bitter and resentful and then you plunge into chaos and then that's all you want to spread through the whole world. Don't be that person. So I will say it again, new year, new you, we're in the new year, 2023, find your inner monster, be that inner monster, but tame it. Only unleash it when you need to and only unleash it for good. You know, uh, one of the great examples I was, I've been told about finding your inner monster is, you know, is when you're standing at the bedside of, of, let's say somebody who you love, maybe it's a sister or brother or mother or father, you're at, they're at their, their bedside and they're dying and everybody around the bed is just absolutely losing it. And they're, it may, it may, they may even be tearing into each other because they just cannot handle the stress of it all. Be the person that stands strong there. Be the person that stands up strong for the person that's in that bed and for the rest of your family. Be, don't, don't shed the tear. Be the rock for that entire family. That is finding your inner monster. That's what you should do. Find it, tame it, and thrive. And so on that note, folks, thank you so much for listening. I'm glad to be back behind the mic. I'm glad I'm feeling better. Unfortunately, my house is still a mess and it's still destroyed, but you know what? I'll get it fixed. Thankfully, uh, I am a builder and so I can do it. But unfortunately, it's going to take some time. So bear with me if I don't get these episodes out um, in a normal rate as I used to. I am going to be working really weird hours from here on out, trying to get the house fixed up and everything. Cause I do have customers who are waiting on me, uh, beyond my own house, but thankfully they're being patient. And so on that note, folks, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it all. Happy new year. Have a great evening and we'll catch you for part four tomorrow. Thank you. Have a good night.